Stories from Yamya Revitalization. The title of our podcast, Nepwandinge, means learning from each other. And it's a phrase that's used to describe the relationship between the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma and Miami University. It's a podcast where we will talk about how the Miami Tribe and Miami University learn from each other and how that has impacted the revitalization process for Miami people. Hi, everybody. My name is Kara Strauss, and I am a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma, and I also work at the Miami Center. Uh, hi, my name is Christina Fox. I'm a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma, and I work with Kara at the Miami Center. Hi, Jake. My name is Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is George Ironstrack. I'm also a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma, and I work with Tina and Kara at the Miami Center. As you heard, we're, we're all citizens of the same tribe, the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma, um, that's based in the town of Miami, Oklahoma, in the northeast corner of that state. Um, in our own language, we call ourselves Miamia, or the downstream people. Um, and we're a, a small tribe, um, we, although we just got updated uh, census information from our last, after our last podcast, where we're now, we're now over 5,800 um, citizens in our nation. Um, and as I said, the tribe is located in northeast Oklahoma, um, but our community's homelands are originally uh, what today are called the states of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, as well as parts of Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, but today, our citizens can be found living in diaspora um, in 49 states, as well as outside the boundaries of what today we call the United States. So in addition to all being citizens of the Miami tribe, we are all also graduates of Miami University. George and I graduated with our master's, Tina with her bachelor's, and and she's now working on her master's. Um, And Miami University is a mid-sized public university in Southwest Ohio. It's about 17,000 undergrads, um, and it's located in the traditional homelands of our people. Yeah, and and I just wanna cut in here and add that it has a beautiful campus. Um, wonderful green space and beautiful trees that the uh, groundskeepers are always working on. Um, So you might hear uh, lawnmowers and leaf blowers in the background of today's episode. So the Miami Center is located on Miami University's campus. Um, They they take great care of us here. Um, It's an initiative of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma, and we serve the needs of Miami people, Miami University, and partner communities through research, education, and outreach to promote Miamia language, culture, knowledge, and and values. Um, As part of all of this work, we are often asked to visit classes or other community events um, with information about our community, about our tribe. With the coronavirus pandemic, we, we faced a new challenge. How do we reach out to people? with all of this information uh, when we're not allowed on campus, when we're not allowed in large gatherings. So that's where the Nepwandinge podcast really came from to present those challenges. And we're recording from offices, we're recording from home. So you might get some interesting background noises as we're recording. (laughs) So just a super quick recap about where we left off after episode one. Um, In 1972, 
Chief Forrest Olds traveled from Miami, Oklahoma out to Cincinnati, Ohio um, for work related to the, the tribe. And on his way, he decided to stop at Miami University because he knew that the university has the same name as his tribe. And that really kicked off the Miami tribe of Oklahoma's relationship with Miami University. Initially, um, a lot of that relationship was focused on the former Native American mascot that Miami University had. But over time, that evolved into a focus on education, and that really flourished under the work of Chief Floyd Leonard and the Vice President for Student Affairs, Murtis Powell. On the tribe side, a lot of stuff was happening. So through an Administration for Native Americans grant, Julie Olds from the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma, David Costa, who was a linguist working on the Miamia language, and Daryl Baldwin, a Miamia citizen who just had a desire to learn about his language and bring it into his own home, were brought together to begin working on the revitalization of Miamia language and culture. The relationship between the tribe and the university presented an opportunity for Daryl to come work creating the, the Miamia project in a little closet office over in King Library to support these educational initiatives for three years. Um, that, that comes into play a little bit later. We've talked a lot about the need for this language work. We did a super brief history of why the Miami tribe is no longer located in our homelands, why we're, we're now out in Oklahoma. So George, could you give us a little bit more history, go a little more in depth of what happened prior to 1972? Yeah, yep. So it's a, a chance to go a little bit deeper and talk about the history of our people, Miamia people, um, explaining how we were relocated, as you said, um, forcibly removed from our homelands and ended up in Oklahoma, as well as how that history impacted um, the state of our language and basically created the need for Daryl and David and Julie to do the work they were doing. So I want to begin first by just um, painting a picture of our homelands before contact with Europeans. Um, and for us, this, this picture begins with a story um, that, that um, begins, At first, the Nyanya came out of the water. And the place where that story took place is um, near what is today South Bend, Indiana. And it describes our arrival into our traditional homelands, um, which is centered, our heartlands are centered on the uh, northern reaches of the Wapashikisipiwe, uh, the Wabash River Valley in what is today uh, northern Indiana. Um, but our homelands included, um, in addition to uh, that river valley, most of the rest of what is today the state of Indiana, as well as um, uh, half of what is today the state of Ohio, all of what is today the state of Illinois, and southern parts of what is today Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, and it was in this space that the Amya people uh, fed ourselves, clothed ourselves, and drew the resources necessary to, to house ourselves. Um, so it was a foundation of our life ways, a foundation of our culture. We were an agricultural-centered people, um, growing mostly maize or corn, minjipe in our language. And uh, women in our communities were the were the farmers, um, and village life centered on um, the organizational and leadership abilities of Miami um, Kuyake, of Miami women. 
Um, and then, you know, outside of the village space, um, in terms of feeding ourselves was the hunting and gathering grounds. Um, and gathering was an activity that both men and women were involved in. Um, hunting though was primarily a, a male activity with some uh, participation from women. Um, and, you know, in that space, we hunted um, basically almost every animal that you could eat, um, but white-tailed deer being um, the primary source of protein for our community. Um, and then uh, we shared this space with lots of other tribal communities, um, communities who, uh, many of whom are, are near neighbors in Oklahoma today. Um, and they all had their own heartlands, um, their own sort of semi-private spaces where we maintained our villages. And then we negotiated and shared the hunting and gathering grounds in between, as well as traded with each other and with tribal communities much more distant from um, the, what is today the Midwest of the United States. Um, so the, that that uh, geographic foundation, the land, Miamiongi, was the base of our community for generations, we say, from time out of mind, time immemorial, um, until war and disruption came uh, after contact with Europeans. So there's a, a period of temporary dislocation that occurs in the very, very early years of contact with Europeans due to down-the-line forces like disease and warfare, um, as well as the disruptions caused by down-the-line trade. Um, but, but after that period of temporary dislocation, we were restored to our homelands. Um, a, more, a much more dramatic break in our connection to our homelands began as our new neighbors, the United States, were born out of the former British colonies at the ending of the, near the end of the War for Independence. Um, and as that war ended, we entered a, a new series of wars um, with the United States that lasted for nearly two decades as we attempted, as well as with our relatives and other tribes um, living nearby, attempted to resist um, United States settlement of our homelands. Um, our ancestors working together with their relatives and other tribal communities fought against three successive invasions of our homelands um, on the part of the United States. Armies marching into our homelands, destroying our villages. Um, but at the end of the third invasion, um, our ability, our capability to, to fight any longer was, was pretty much um, bled out of us. And so we, we had to uh, sign a treaty, um, 1795, the first treaty of Greenville. Um, which um, was used to bring the conflict to an end. And in return for peace, we had to cede um, our, our control of what is today um, southeastern Ohio, a place that had a few Miamia villages in it over time, but at that time in the 1790s or in the, in the years prior to conflict was, um, was uh, prime hunting grounds for our people. Hoche Mimishikia, I want to connect a few dots for folks who are from Miami University and just mentioned that the Treaty of Greenville cedes the land um, where Miami University is located today, correct? That is correct, yep. And so when we think about the timeline, that treaty is signed in 1795 and Miami University is formed in 1809. So we're just talking about a 14 year difference there. And so I think it's important for people from Miami University to understand the connection of the seeding of our traditional homelands to the ability of the creation of institutions like Miami University in this part of the country. Yep, they're inextricably linked together. Um, 
um, that treaty history and the history of the founding of universities like Miami. Yep. And, you know, in, in that pattern in terms of the, um, you could say nearly forced transfer of land from tribal nations to the U.S. to create uh, all the states of what the U.S. called the Northwest Territory um, continues from 1795 for us through 1840. Um, we negotiated in total 11 treaties with the United States. Um, these are nation-to-nation agreements that established the U.S.'s legitimate control from their perspective, legitimate control of our homelands. Um, and so, you know, in that period, we're ceding we're relinquishing most of our remaining land base as a people. And in 1840, it gets worse. We agree in principle to the idea of removal from our homelands to a new reservation west of the Mississippi, um, which is a product of the era of Indian removal, where um, following the Indian Removal Act in 1830, the United States government's goal is to remove forcibly or otherwise remove tribe all tribes west of the Mississippi. Um, while our, our folks agreed to it on paper, we immediately turned to resisting um, resisting that removal. Um, and we learned later that that they were told uh, verbally, but this was not written down, that no one, no Miamia person who uh, wanted to stay in Indiana would be forced to leave. And they were trying to um, enforce verbal terms that were never written down and they, were, they failed to do so. And in 1846, um, the US Army showed up um, near Peru, Indiana, and began um, through threat of force, they didn't actually use violence, but threatened it to initiate um, the forced removal um, of our people. Um, so this was, you know, in our community about six to seven generations ago, um, but for a lot of us, it feels emotionally uh, really close um, and still, um, as, as, as you can imagine, uh, has a lot of pain and sorrow connected to it in our community. And so as we think about this this forced removal, um, you know, Miami people traveled down the canal system through Ohio. And again, there's a connection to the land here in Oxford, um, where Miami University is located. It was really only a few miles away that the canal passed by here in 1846. Um, and looking at documents from Miami University's archives, it's likely that classes were in session here at Miami University as these canal boats passed by, relocating our Miamia community um, out of our traditional homelands. So just to kind of put everything together, we, we had a lot of, of territory that we used in the Midwest for hunting, gathering, farming, with concentrated um, a, a concentrated area where most of our villages were, um, and as you know, the the United States grew, we started to come into conflict there, um, which led to um, war and eventually the signing of treaties. So the first treaty in 1795, the Treaty of Greenville. Um, ceded the land where Miami University is now. And then over the course of <laughs> 11 more treaties, we lost more of our land base. And then in 1846, we're looking at actual removal. So the United States taking control of what is left of our land base in the Midwest. 
And as this is happening, Miami University classes are likely occurring. Our ancestors that were removed are going down the canals, down in this area, down to Cincinnati, where they then travel further west. So what, what happens once our, our ancestors are out west? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, on that, that first forced removal in 1846, there are over 320 Miamia people removed via the canal boats and, and steam steamboats that, that both of you mentioned already. Um, and there were also around 150 Miamia people who were allowed to stay behind in what is today Indiana. Um, and uh, those folks were living on small uh, family or individual reserve lands that were created by the same treaties that, um, uh, that our folks were forced to sign that, that basically relinquished most of our homelands. Um, so that removal produces a fracturing of our people. The, the tribal nation is removed out west, west of the Mississippi into what is today Kansas. It was unorganized at that time, um, but our population is split into two. Um, and in Kansas, our tribal nation and those 300, over 320 people arrive um, on a new reservation that's in eastern Kansas, um, south of uh, 50, 60 miles south of the, the landing point, uh, which was Kansas City, Missouri is where folks landed. Um, so south of Kansas City today um, by 50, 60 miles. And um, that that um, reservation is very quickly whittled away at and, and lost over time through through treaties and a process that's called allotment or the division of lands. And after the US Civil War, um, Kansas is a state. And once again, the same exact process repeats itself where the US government and the state of Kansas want tribal nations removed from their borders and pushed south into what was then called Indian territory, what is today Oklahoma. And in 1867, our nation again signs, um, well, signs our last treaty with the United States that agrees um, to relocation to the Northeast corner of Indian territory. Um, And once again, this produces a split in the nation where those who want to stay behind on their new brand new homes that they had just built a generation ago um, in Kansas, um, they can stay, but they, they have to relinquish their citizenship and their tribe um, which was, I'm sure, a, a painful decision, as was a, the, the forcible relocation from our homes. Um, and some folks made that choice and stayed behind in Kansas, um, while the nation, again, the tribal nation itself, the government, and um, just about over 100 people um, relocated to um, the northeast corner of Indian Territory and to a shared reservation um, that we shared with our uh, cousins, the Peoria tribe. Um, so at that point, after that second removal, um, you have a population fragmented into three parts, Indian territory, West Oklahoma, Kansas, and Indiana. Um, and you have a much smaller land base for the tribal nation, um, in, in, um, Indian territory, less than 20,000 acres, um, was controlled by our tribal nation inside that shared, um, that shared, uh, reservation space. Um, and that land is also very quickly um, lost in a way to the nation through a process, again, called allotment, uh, whereby in 18, 1889, um, the Miami part of the shared reservation um, is allotted to tribal citizens um, at 200 acres apiece. And um, the, the limited amount of leftover land is eventually um, sold 
at auction. And after that process completes, the tribe is is almost completely landless as a as a governmental entity. Um, and within 25 years, a lot of the individual um, allotments are also lost to tribal families. Um, so this this land loss, you know, accelerates poverty in the community and um, magnifies the population fragmentation, where people then leave Oklahoma to to find sustainable jobs elsewhere. Um, and a similar process repeats itself in Kansas and Indiana as the the small parcels held there are lost over time. And this is how uh, this is the root of why you can find um, why you can find Miami people today living in in forty nine states inside the United States as well as outside the boundaries of the United States. Um, so we've been talking a lot about land. Land is obviously very, very important. Um, but one of the things that we talked about a lot in the last episode is education and this need for education. So where does that stem from? The We lost a lot when we lost our land. So can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I hope what listeners can hear as we're describing the story of land is a, is a really terrible loss of control over how we lived our lives as people. And um, what's woven into there is a loss of control over the education of our children so that, you know, Miami children were originally educated in the homes of their families. And for those children who um, had, you know, abilities or skills, they're oftentimes received what you could call a higher education in the homes of the the leaders, um, learning how to be diplomats and traders in the community, learning to speak other languages and the histories of other people. So we had our own uh, informal educational system uh, before the arrival of, of Europeans. Um, but, but in the 1800s, our people began to participate in a new form of education that was external to the community and was called, eventually came to be called a boarding school system where youth were taken from the community, um, usually pretty far from the community, and then were educated um, in, those, in those places by um, uh, eventually Americans. And this, um, this boarding school system was heavily focused on um, a civilizing campaign. Um, and the, the goal was, um, especially for Miami people in the early years, was to treat um, us like immigrants to the, to the United States, whereby we would give up our language and religion of origin and adopt a Protestant work ethic, adopt English only um, in the home and outside the home for communication. And then, um, you know, give up our communities and migrate to where um, jobs were. Um, and so this this it, this system was enforced through violence and oppression, and you know, um, generally not a, a healthy educational environment from our perspective as as a people. And our our first young people who went to boarding school were acknowledged by the community as coming back basically damaged and unable to reintegrate into the community and be successful. Um, and you know that only accelerated in the years years that followed. There were some improvements, but it was it was generally um, a negative experience for that for our people at the communal level. And it really cut into um, it really cut into language uh, transmissions. So young children then taken from the homes to. Sp- learned to speak English only. They still spoke Miamia, many of them, when they returned to the community, but they they then did not teach it to their children. Um, and so it, it has a huge impact then 
uh, pretty quickly on the health of our language. Um, and you know, this, uh, the emotional damage of boarding schools lived on our community for years afterwards. We have boarding school survivors who lived into the 1980s. Um, and one prominent elder in our community, um, uh, Mildred Walker was also a boarding school survivor. She passed away in 2012. So, you know, these are in some cases, you know, really recent experiences for our people. Um, and that set up the challenge that we face today in terms of, um, in terms of language revitalization. Um, so that by the 1960s, um, there were, uh, the, the last of our speakers began to pass away. And at that point, it had probably already been decades since Miami people were gathered together in large groups, uh, enjoying each other's company, speaking Miami Atawengi, speaking our language. So you said that by the 1960s, children are no longer really learning our language. One thing that we've, we have noticed amongst families, some knowledge gets passed down, but it's not communicative, it's not flourishing, it's not an everyday language situation. So there's a small gap between the last language speakers and Chief Force Old's first visit to Miami University. And as you've mentioned, we're, we're just in a period of decline when it comes to education. So Kara, can you kind of talk about what this means for the Miami community? this this period of decline and, and where we're at when Chief Olds visits? Sure. So from a government perspective, the tribe is now in Oklahoma, um, separated from our traditional homelands. So for Chief Olds, when he visits Miami University, again, that's him returning to his homelands. I think that's an important piece of, of why this relationship you know, began and that the tribe was interested in continuing it, right, is this connection to our, our homelands. But for our community more generally, this history of forced assimilation and forced appropriation led us to a place where we had a decline in language and culture. And so knowing that there were no longer any speakers of our language this is what led to the need for language and cultural revitalization. And so what the Miamia community is engaged in, much of that happening here at the Miamia Center is archive-based revitalization. Um, and I know that that um, is probably something that's a little hard to understand. How do you go from not having any speakers of a language to bringing it back and speaking it once again. Um, so maybe Shakia, would you talk a little bit about what archive-based revitalization is? Yeah, yeah. So as we mentioned in episode one, um, you know, by the time Daryl started his work in the 1990s, um, you know, both he and David learned there were no speakers of the language. Um, as as Pekatua mentioned, there were people who like had memorized small chunks of the language, but it wasn't communicative anymore. It was just sort of memorized chunks of language. And um, they also learned there were no substantial, no significant sound recordings of the language. Um, but what David Costa found to a large extent and Daryl found to a small extent is that there were lots of documents 
um, for the language that had been recorded over time. And, um, you know, at first, a few small breadcrumbs turned into basically an avalanche of archival sources, um, where what, what David found is that our language, um, which linguists call the Miami, Illinois language, what we call Miao Miao Toenge, had been recorded um, by Europeans beginning in the late 1600s by French Jesuit missionaries. And um, that the writing down of our language through interviews with speakers continued all the way until the 1960s. And so that corpus of documents uh, turned out to be so substantial that, um, you know, working through them in terms of doing research uh, and reclaiming our language um, is a, a process is, that we recognize now as intergenerational. There's so much material of such high quality that um, David and now, you know, other linguists are able to um, process the linguistic data to reclaim our language and, um, you know, begin to take it from sort of linguistic work, which is highly technical, uh, and working together with people like Daryl and us uh, convert that more technical understanding of the language into materials that are teaching materials where we can actually teach the language in a communicative fashion in our community where it's not simply just memorized chunks. It's actually folks being able to use the language in an organic way to communicate our, about our daily lives. Um, but that, that process of, of, of archive-based revitalization, that was new work. Uh, we weren't the we, are, we and we still aren't the only ones doing it. But when we started, there was only one or two other groups out there working uh, on archive-based work, and a lot of uh, people did not believe it was uh, had any chance of being successful. And so it was it was a risk, it was a gamble, um, but it was it was all we had, right? Yeah, you know, there was no other material for us to work with, um, and we're now um, you know reaping the rewards of over twenty years of work. Um, with these with these documents that you know thankfully right digitization technology has progressed to a level where these really old fragile documents have all been digitized and can be analyzed um, and, and converted to teaching materials um, long distance now so it's a really amazing process to be at least on the fringes of as a, as a teacher yeah and so at the end of the last podcast episode we left off with Daryl walking into his closet in King Library. <laughs> and he really had no model for what he needed to do. So it's really interesting to think about what happens next with this relationship, what happens next with the creation of the Miamia project. Um, he had a three-year commitment to do this work at Miami University. And he really just started to focus on this language revitalization work that the tribe needed. So working with people like David Costa and Julie Olds um, was just thinking about what the tribe needed and how to do this, this tedious um, and really you know, ongoing work of, of understanding the language from this archive-based linguistic analysis and thinking about how to teach it within our community. And, can, you know, a couple day, keen day. Um, yeah. we, we've spent a lot of time talking about Daryl and David and what they did and what they contributed. And we've thrown around the name Julie Olds. She's she's very important. So could we could we take a minute to kind of give her the the recognition of, of her hard work that she deserves? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So Julie Olds is the cultural resource officer from the Miami tribe. Um, and she stepped into that role many years ago. Um, she was involved in that original um, grant that set up this language revitalization work. Um, and she has been a continued presence on the tribal side, pushing for the continuation of language revitalization work. She also serves as the liaison between the Miami tribe and Miami University. And so she's the one that really takes the work that we do here at the Miami Center and makes sure that tribal leadership is updated on it and that they understand the importance of this work and um, works with them to you know, provide funding for the Miami Center. And so she has been a constant in this story um, and is really important to the relationship as well as the language revitalization work that's ongoing. Yeah, kind of kind of on our end, she also has um, a really, really good idea of what's going on in the community. So she she helps keep us connected as well and and guiding us and where we need to be. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean she's right, she grew up in the Miami, Oklahoma area and still lives there to this day. And um, you know, when it's not coronavirus season is in the tribal offices every day. And so she's got a view on the ground of the community in Oklahoma that's that's really um, invaluable to our effort. And she's, I think we could all fairly say she's pretty visionary in the way she sees possibilities. Um, and I, I think Daryl acknowledges key to him um, having a sense of what was possible, even if there wasn't a, a plan, they had a lot of ideas. Um, that, that she helped produce. And I think just to add, I'm not sure we clarified this, she's not directly related herself to Forrest Olds who made the first visit to Miami, but um, her husband is. So her husband, Dustin, who's also a travel citizen, um, uh, Forrest Olds is his uh, great uncle, I believe. Yeah, and we would be remiss not to also say that she's a brilliant Miami artist who was integral to the process of creating the Miami Heritage logo, which is used here at Miami University. Yeah. So as we continue through this timeline of what's happening with the creation of the Miami project, um, Daryl creates the Miami Heritage course just a couple of years after starting at Miami in 2003. Um, and this was really the first time that that um, the Miami students who were attending Miami University since 1991 um, were being asked to come together. And here they were coming together to learn about their Miami language, history, culture. Um, and it was really an opportunity for Daryl to teach what he had been learning about Miami language and culture. A year later in 2004, um, we come to the end of that three-year commitment, um, but as far as we can tell, there wasn't really a official renewal of that commitment, but instead, both the Miami Tribe and Miami University saw this project being successful, and so the work continued on. In that same year, um, Daryl creates the first Miami Conference which is an opportunity for the work that's being done here at Miami University to be shared with both the Miami and Miami University communities. 
Um, and then in 2005, a couple of really big things happen. Um, the first um, dictionary is published. Um, and this was an opportunity for everyone who had been working on this language revitalization project to share a tangible outcome with the entire Miamia community. So there are many things that have been published over time out of the Miamia Center. And what happens is um, that the Miami tribe takes those publications, prints them, and sends them to all tribal households. And with the Miamia Dictionary being one of those very first publications, it was a chance to get something out into the entire Miamia community that showed even our own community that this language existed, that it you know, could be vibrant and spoken again. And so I think that that um, first publication of the dictionary was an important stepping stone um, to the continued language revitalization process. That same year in 2005 was the first year of our Awen Zapata summer camp. Um, so that is a program for our youth um, ages 10 to 16 to come together to learn um, Miamia language and culture. Um, and this is the first kind of big tribal program that is coming out of the work of the Miamia project. Um, and that happened in Oklahoma. Continuing to move forward in 2006, Miami University and the Miamia Project um, sign, no, in 2006, the Miamia Center and the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma sign a memorandum of understanding. And this was the first time since the creation of the Miamia Project that both entities, I think, were thinking about this outcome of the Miamia project and wanting to decide officially how it would move forward and what each side was responsible for. And so it's interesting that this work had been going on for five years at this point, um, but eventually it grew to a level at which both sides thought it was necessary to really formalize that process and, and sign some documents. And so this is how um, we work still today in the Miamia Center is under that original memorandum of understanding with additional documents um, signed sporadically to talk about different aspects of our work and who's responsible for, for what. In 2007, a year later, the first additional hire um, happens. Um, and so Daryl hires Andrew Strack um, who is a graduate of the Miami Heritage Program. And so this really starts the process of staff growth within the Miami Project. Um, you know, now they have a few people who can be, can be working on this. Um, and it's important to the continued growth of, of the Miami Project. You know, this growth continues to happen over the next couple of years and, and other people join the team. There's lots of projects that are going on. Um, but the biggest transition happens in 2013. And that's when the Miamia Project transitions to the Miamia Center. Um, and that's really much more important than just a name change. Within a university setting, a center is something that is permanent, institutionalized. And so we go from having something that 
you know, while it's successful and both sides want the work to continue, it still was uncertain at that point. But in 2013, it becomes institutionalized as the Miami Center. Um, and it was a big step for both Miami University and the Miami tribe to acknowledge that this is something that will continue um, into the future. Just one thing I, th- I think that I'd like to, you to speak to for our listeners is just the the agreement signed before carry forward for the Miami Center. And, you know, one, one real issue around uh, university research with tribal communities is intellectual property. And can you speak a little bit to um, the intellectual property, the, the knowledge of Miami people that the Miami Center works on and who that belongs to? Absolutely. So this is an important piece of the relationship between the tribe and the university and is outlined in that memorandum of understanding is that everything that's created by then the Miami Project, but now the Miami Center, is the intellectual property of the Miami tribe of Oklahoma. And that is an important recognition of the sovereignty of the Miami tribe and the recognition that the university had no rights to the ownership of cultural property of a tribal nation. And that was a really, I think, important acknowledgement by the university, very unique. If you talk to any faculty members who work at universities, they will tell them that this is one of the things that's a non-negotiable when you work at a university is that, you know, the intellectual property belongs to the university. Um, And so this was, you know, an important piece of that continued growth um, of, of the center, but also has a really important impact on our tribal nation because this is our information, right? And we can continue to use it and not be worried that the university will um, appropriate it in some way for their own use. Yeah. So as we're getting kind of closer to current day, um, one of the last big things that happens on our timeline is that Daryl Baldwin, who you've heard a lot about, um, wins a MacArthur Fellowship in 2016. So for those of you who've heard about MacArthur Fellowships, you might hear them called a genius grant. Daryl, I'm sure will hate us saying that, (laughs) but what that means is that this work that's been happening over the previous 15 years um, that had been happening slowly, organically, and kind of under the radar in a lot of ways um, could no longer be under the radar. It was now nationally and internationally known um, as being at the forefront of this language revitalization process. Um, And at that very same time, we have a new president who comes to Miami University, President Crawford. Um, And so he arrives at the university around the same time. And so Miami University, I think, really recognizes that while they had not, I don't think, a very good understanding of what we do or what they should be thinking about with the Miami Center, they do recognize the importance of it and want to become more involved in this process. And so President Crawford has been 
really integral to the continued growth since 2006 of the Miamia Center. He's come to Oklahoma with us. Um, he even uses Miamia language in some of his um, videos and addresses that he makes. And so under his leadership, we're just continuing to strengthen this relationship between the tribe and the university and see continued growth within the Miamia Center as well. So today we have um, six full-time and seven part-time staff. I might, I might not have those numbers um, exactly correct, but we're just so much larger. It can be doing so much more of this community-based work um, than I think Daryl would have ever expected to have been true when he started this project in 2001. You know, we mentioned last podcast, we opened with an excerpt of Daryl speaking um, at the 2017 commencement for Miami University. So, um, you know, that that's a big deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we also mentioned that we had um, Miami Heritage students graduating that day. So we were not only building the larger Miami community, bringing them back together, rebuilding that um, and working with the Miami University and neighboring communities. We're also building um, a a Miamia community in Oxford with our heritage students. Um, You know, they like to joke about tribe dinners after class. It's become a tradition for the undergraduates to all go to a dining hall together. Um, So there's a lot of community happening (laughs) across the board. Uh, and that's that's one of the things that I think for me personally is really exciting to see is seeing those connections built together. Um, do you guys have anything that you would like to add? I have like one more question about the Miamia Center. <laughs> so, Yeah, I appreciate you adding that just because I think it can be easy to get lost in, you know, we have a timeline and lots of things are happening. We're doing all of this research. But you're absolutely correct that all of our work comes back to community and our community here in Oxford, our community in our population centers in Oklahoma and Indiana, as well as across the country. Yeah, and I think just speaking from my time here at grad school in grad school till now, I was in grad school here from 2004 to 2006 and participated in the Miami Heritage course series. And um, the energy in the room now in 2020 is, you know, orders of magnitude stronger, both in terms of the numbers of students who are in the room, but also the excitement that they're bringing to the classroom. It was there in 0406, 0406, but it's it's just grown so much in tandem with everything else we've described. Um, it doesn't really, I think, fit into a timeline, as you said, Tina, but it's important mm-hmm. to acknowledge the, the positive growth of that um, that energy among our young people. Yeah. So my my last question about the Miami Center specifically, we talked about at the at the very beginning, 2001, Daryl has funding for three years. Well, obviously, we've outgrown that three year funding. So how are we supporting the Miami Center today? Obviously, we have institutional support from the university. Um, are they also funding it? Is the tribe funding it? What does that look like? Yeah, so the majority of the operating budget for the Miami Center comes from the Miami tribe. Um, it's really a, you know, a cost sharing model where Miami University pays for um, some salary of a, a couple of folks at the center and benefits 
Um, but then the majority of our operating budget does come from the tribe. Um, and I think that that is actually an important thing to acknowledge because it does allow us some freedom within an institution like Miami University um, to stay focused on our community-based work when our budget is coming from the Miami tribe. So then the question I think comes to, you know, how does the tribe pay for this, right? And so um, we have an economic model within the Miami tribe that we own several businesses and then that the income from those businesses helps us to operate our tribal nation. Um, so a couple of those businesses within the tribe include two casinos that we um, own in Miami, Oklahoma, where the tribe is headquartered. Um, and that is actually where a lot of the educational budget on the tribe side comes from. And so our work here at the Miami Center is actually directly funded um, in part by that casino revenue. And I think there's kind of a stereotype out there, right, of uh, like rich casino Indians. Um, <laughs> and maybe folks listening would, would that stereotype would come to mind right now, but I think that doesn't really apply in our case at all. Um, but, um, you know, our casinos do make a small profit. And especially in the early years, um, that was the first time the tribe had money that could be used on educational programs for language and culture. Before that, there was no budget line for it. So um, casino money um, doesn't go into any of our citizens' pockets. Um, we don't drive fancy cars from the casinos or anything like that. But um, it was vital to, to the first steps of language revitalization work. And um, I always like to emphasize that to sort of poke holes in the stereotype about uh, Indian casinos. Yeah, I think if you uh, walked into either of our casinos in Miami, Oklahoma, uh, you would not be making that joke about being a, <laughs> a rich casino Indian. They're they're pretty small and, you know, mostly uh, slot machines and those types of things. And so um, I think even I was surprised the first time going into them about, you know, not only how small they are, but how many casinos there are in and around Miami, Oklahoma, all <laughs> yeah. of the tribes are trying to get their piece of that casino revenue as well. So we, we've spent a lot of time doing timelines. Um, we touched a little bit on, you know, what what we're getting out of this, this revitalization, rebuilding our community. Um, so what what is really a, a good example, a good story? Um, that we that we can use to to really talk about that growth and how far we've come. Yeah, so the story that really comes to mind to me, especially given our current circumstances, um, where we're not able to gather as much together as a people, is was a really powerful, um, powerful, powerful emotional moment for me um, in in 2018, summer of 2018, during our our um, national homecoming gathering, and. Um, on uh, the Thursday night of that week, uh, we uh, the tribe organized a stomp dance. Um, and uh, it was the first time we were able to do this dance with enough of our own uh, leaders, both women, men and women, to, to run the dance just sort of for our own people um, in a really important location. Um, so it's a for me, that event is that stomp dance in 2018 is a really uh, powerful example of a tipping point where we had reached a stage where um, 
our community had revitalized to a degree, not just in terms of the language we were speaking, but the activities we were doing um, to bring ourselves together in a way that um, had very strong threads of continuity with our past. Um, so stomp dance is a dance style that our people have done for generations, but just as with language loss, there was a time where um, we weren't doing it as actively and we certainly didn't have leaders um, to, to help run dances. Um, it's a very popular dance among our, our relative tribes in Northeast Oklahoma. And in the past, um, and even today, we work together, we rely on each other to be able to pull together bigger dances, bigger public celebrations. Um, but we hadn't um, had enough of our own people to do like a smaller dance just for us, where we could be just Miyamiake, just Miami people all together. Um, so that moment of where we have enough men who know how to sing and the dance is a, is a leading dance um, where uh, a single file is formed, alternating man and woman. And then that single file then spirals in a counterclockwise fashion around usually a fire in the center. Um, and for, for, for listeners out there who haven't um, participated in the stomp dance, there are uh, YouTube videos online that you can find of stomp dances from Oklahoma. Um, but um, what we want to do is just introduce you at least to the sound of a stomp dance. Um, so we have this wonderful recording done by our, our great friend, uh, Ben Barnes, who's uh, actually the chief of the Shawnee tribe, our near neighbors in Oklahoma, and one of the people um, most responsible um, for teaching our young people how to stomp dance in our community um, and encouraging us to, to take up leadership um, uh, in, in our own community in this dance. And so there, this is a recording from him um, from some years back, um, leading a, a song together with uh, other folks, shakers and singers who are, are based in the Miami, Oklahoma area. I'm a, a caller in the community, I'm a singer in the community in both um, the Katoa and Lakunza Choir Shakers in the community. Um, and then we had numerous young people who were also graduates of Miami University, as well as young people who never came to Miami University but came through our youth programs who were also leaders in this dance. Um, so it was really powerful to bring all those people together and um, to paint a picture of this place. Um, so you get a, listeners can kind of imagine how beautiful of a night it was. Uh, this dance took place around a fire out behind what's called Sipikwa Wiki, the Drake House. And the Drake House is a beautiful, um, large, old allotment house that sits on uh, the allotment land of the Drake family. Um, Jane Drake's family. And um, after allotment, it was lost to the Miami community for a while. And then it was it was purchased back and now belongs to us as a tribal nation again. And it's a place where we gather to do all different kinds of activities, as well as many of us sleep out there when we're living uh, in Oklahoma for weeks on end during the summertime. And um, so it's a really beautiful uh, location to the north of Miami, um, pretty far north of town where you can't even see the lights of town anymore. And there are these beautiful old pecan trees in the backyard and their branches kind of overhang the space where we danced. And there's a, a wonderful fire built that night. And so it's, it's, you know, pretty dark. You couldn't really see anything except by the light of the fire, maybe a porch light or two on the house. 
Um, and, you know, quite a large gathering of Miamia Mia people there, uh, 50 people or so gathered back there um, underneath the trees to dance. Um, and, you know, we could all be Miamia Mia together, um, you know, joining as individuals into a dance where you kind of become a part of one large organism. Um, and stomp dance is a very kind of uh, slow moving dance in comparison to others and um, very soothing. Um, and I think as I've already described kind of a sense of unity is built through participation in these dances. Um, and so it was a really nice evening to just be meow meow together, um, to, to sing and dance and use our language. So we use the language in, in uh, calling out the dances and in some of the songs we use our language. Um, but, you know, all that is rather than the, the goal of the night was not language. The goal of the night was to be a community together and language and culture were just infused um, in that night. Um, you know, and it's, it's, you know, moments like that, that I'm really, really missing right now um, because of COVID, we're not able to gather and dance like that. Um, we're not able to gather in community really in a substantial way right now. And so that, that feeling of all like of joining our voices together, of joining the steps of our feet together. Um, you know, it's a really big absence, big hole right now for me. I'm really looking forward to, um, I think our, our first dance together as a community will be pretty emotional and in good ways. Um, when we're, when we're finally out the other side of this and able to, you know, to celebrate who we are, um, through, through dance, through just being together as a people. So I, I kind of want to reiterate, you said that this was at the conclusion of a day during our, our um, national gathering week. So earlier in the day, people gathered out at Sipikwa Awiki to play games, hang out, have food. So it was, it was just a day of being fam, a big family together. And this Conclude the, the day concluded with this moment where we could really um, express ourselves again through our culture um, without any assistance. Um, you know, we 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 owe a lot to our neighbors out in Oklahoma for helping us get to that point. Um, but you know, it was it was a conclusion to a big day of being family, and we ended it with being family again. Um, so over the last two episodes, we've covered a lot of history, both of the Miami tribe and the development of the relationship with Miami tribe and Miami university. Um, so what questions do you have? What is sticking with you that you've been thinking a lot about? Um, even if it's not an actual question, you know, we, we like to know what is, what has been impactful for you. Um, so if this podcast is part of a class, you know, follow whatever instructions you were given to um, communicate with us. Uh, if you're not doing this as part of a class, you can find us on social media, look for the Miamia Center on Twitter and Facebook, or you can shoot us an email at miamiacenter at miamioh.edu. Um, or, you know, you can just Google Miamia Center and find out how to contact us from our website too. Next episode, we're, we're really going to look at the 
50th anniversary of the relationship between the Miami tribe and Miami University. So 50 years is happening in 2022, not that far off, but it's always good to look ahead, reminisce a little and, and see what work is, is still needed, where we're, where we're going. Thank you everyone for listening to us. We want to say thank you to the many folks who have helped us make this podcast possible. Um, first to Jonathan Fox, who is our editor and producer, as well as to Daryl Baldwin and Julie Olds, um, both for their help in putting this together, but also for their impact of, you know, the last many years of the creation of the Miamia Center. A big thank you to Miami University Communications and Marketing, um, as well as the Communications Department for allowing us access to their recording studio, even though we can't be there today. And we owe an especially big mission away um, to all of the communities in Oklahoma who have helped us learn to stomp dance and especially Ben Barnes for allowing us to use his audio recordings of stomp dance in this episode.